Republicans to wake up. Is with the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show, and thanks to listeners who support this program. If you'd like to help, and uh, if you're in a position to do so, log on to my website at peterbcollins.com. Click on that tab that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. My thanks today to Raymond Welch, Don Sisney, Chris Bryan, and Gillian Hurst for your support of the Peter B. Collins Show. Later in this podcast, I have some pretty strong comments on the release of Israel's whitewash report of its piracy in international waters on May 31st when they interdicted the Free Gaza flotilla and nine people died. Mistakes were made, they said. Also later in this podcast, blogger Roger Schuler returns to our program. He blogs as Legal Schnauzer. Been following the case of Governor Don Siegelman in Alabama. Supreme Court's given him a partial reprieve. We'll talk about that. And also, Roger has some strong comments in a recent post about Barack Obama's backpedaling on our civil liberties. And we lead the program today, welcoming back Andy Worthington, the British journalist who really is the keeper of the definitive accounts of our sordid history at Guantanamo Bay. And speaking of presidential backpedaling, that will come into play as well. Andy Worthington is the author of The Guantanamo Files, and his exhaustive work continues to be updated on his website, andyworthington.co.uk. Andy, thanks for joining us again today. Hello, Peter. It's always a pleasure, and it's good to be back. Well, I want to start with uh, an overview of your work, because you do all of this as, a, as an individual. You don't have a newsroom. You don't have producers or researchers who go out and do legwork for you. And the body of work that you have assembled is so impressive and so important, in my view, and its importance is something that is uh, un- undervalued on these shores in the United States. But you've been working for several years now, uh, really chronicling the events at Guantanamo, the legal issues around them, uh, the choice by the Bush administration to engage in torture, to engage in 
long-term detention without charge or trial in deep violation of our treaty commitments and our own constitution. And you've recently updated the prisoner list of the 779 individuals who have been or are currently held at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And you've also uh, archived uh, three years, 650 articles listed in chronological order. And I, I want to point this out because some people may be hearing you for the first time on this podcast, Andy, and I want them to know that your work is available and that you've done an incredible job of uh, really following these stories, detailing the plight of these disparate individuals who have been held there. And you do all this for donations from your readers and sales of your book. Is that correct? Well, I have a few places who pay me to write for them, Peter, which is, um, you know, something that has built up over the years. Um, but, yes, I am, you know, I am partly reliant on um, on donations from readers. I mean, that that's, in a way, that's part of the way um, that news reporting has developed with the Internet, I think, is that we've moved away from, we're moving away in some ways from an advertising-led traditional media model to a model where, um, you know, people are, are putting their work out and they're asking readers to support them by donating. So. And, and you don't get any grants from the Maxwell Journalism Trust or the Murdoch uh, Page 3 Girl Trust? <laughs> Funnily enough, no, I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mention that because uh, there are prominent requests for people to support your work on your website, and I certainly think you're very deserving. So if any of my listeners are in a position to help out, uh, go to andyworthington.co.uk, and there's a PayPal donate button right there. And uh, if you can help support Andy's work, I would certainly appreciate it, and I know he and uh, his family would as well. So, Andy, uh, in one of the summaries, one of the first statistics that jumped out at me is that 93% of the 779 men and boys held at Guantanamo Bay were either completely innocent people seized as a result of dubious intelligence or sold for bounty, or Taliban foot soldiers recruited to fight an international uh, 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 civil, I'm sorry, an inter-Muslim civil war that began long before the terrorist attacks of September 11 and had nothing to do with al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, or international terrorism. Ninety-three percent. That is such a sorry figure. And it, it flies in the face of the repeated assertions from Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and others that Guantanamo was where the worst of the worst, the darkest human beings ever born to the planet, were consigned to this island prison that they hoped would be out of the reach of the U.S. courts. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's funny, Peter, because I think that that statistic has actually um, effectively been conceded um, by the Obama administration, because, you know, uh, last year, um, President Obama established um, a, a, a task force, um, the Guantanamo Review Task Force, which consisted, um, possibly alarmingly, we, we might have thought, of um, representatives of government departments and of, of uh, all kinds of agencies, I mean, involving um, the CIA and other intelligence agencies, who... Um, painstakingly reviewed the cases of all the prisoners last year um, to decide who they thought they could put forward for trial, who they thought could be um, released, um, approved for transfer is how they put it, 
um, and who, um, you know, so, so looking at all the cases. Now, you know, in the first instance, there was a certain conflict going on here because the prisoners already had habeas corpus petitions um, queued up and in some cases, you know, reaching a result in the district court in Washington, D.C. Um, and this legal process is something that's been going on a lot longer than President Obama's administration and has, um, and has credibility and, most importantly, I think, a certain amount of transparency, um, but nevertheless, the, the you know the administration decided it wanted to know who was at Guantanamo. I kind of understand that, so they did this review of all the prisoners' cases. We have 181 men at Guantanamo now, and what the task force advised was that 35 of the men who are still held should be put forward for trials of some sort. Um, they recommended of the 181 men who are still there that I think 97 of those who are still there should be released. Mm -hmm. um, and they um, also then um, completely embraced uh, Bush's ideas about um, holding people by recommending that a further 48 men should continue to be held indefinitely, but that there wasn't enough evidence or that the evidence was somehow not reliable enough for them actually to be put on trial. Um, I have a very, very major problem with that issue. But if you look at those figures, what we have after, um, you know, all these years after Guantanamo opened um, is that the, the definitive decision of the administration on the number of people who could be charged is 35. Out of 779, um, that's roughly the 93.7% the, the um, statistic that I came up with. Yeah. Um, you know, and it wasn't, um, this isn't something that, that has just emerged either. I mean, this is something that over the years um, was conceded by, um, by officials, intelligence officials, who, who spoke to various major media on the occasions when the major media was interested. Um, so, you know, before September 2006, um, when 14 high-value detainees, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, were moved into Guantanamo from the secret CIA prisons. Um, you know, there, there had been officials had spoken to the New York Times back in 2004 who had said somewhere between a dozen and perhaps a little more than two dozen of the men held had some kind of low to middle involvement with, with al-Qaeda. There were no senior leaders in al-Qaeda before these guys were brought in from the secret prisons. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I, I essentially think that that's just the bottom. That's the bottom line. Um, is is yes. Let, let's uh, you know. Maybe we could shift this to one percentage point, um, one way or another. But yeah, essentially, I will I will stand by that. That ninety three percent of the people were nothing to do with what this place was supposed to be about, which is you know a prison for the worst of the worst terrorists involved in the nine eleven attacks and other acts of international terrorism. Now, Andy, I want to delve into these three groups, but uh, take us into your work mode for a moment. How have you managed to build case files on these 779 individuals? And you, you've basically written, at, at minimum, a paragraph about each and a, a chapter about some. And uh, tell me, do, do you put a picture up on a, on a whiteboard? Do you have a... Uh, a, a way that you focus on the individual cases and take them one by one. Uh, how have you worked on this in, in, in your journalism work? Well, essentially, you know, it, it's really all initially based on the research that I did for the book. 
So, you know, when in the spring of 2006, the administration finally, the Bush administration finally released the names and nationalities of the men held, everybody had been groping in the dark before that. Nobody knew quite who was there. So, you know, from that point on, we knew who they were. Um, now, the government also was obliged to release 8,000 pages of allegations um, and also transcripts of the tribunals that had been held these Mickey Mouse tribunals that were their response to when the Supreme Court told the government, give these guys habeas rights, um, you know, let's start um, checking out why you're holding them. And the Bush administration cynically held its own rigged military system mm -hmm. to um, decide that they were all enemy combatants and they could continue to be held. But the, the, they were airing the allegations at that point. And, and in some of the cases, the prisoners decided to take part and they came and presented their side of the story. So there was a, quite a lot of information to work with to try and work out who these guys were. Now, the problem is that taking any of these stories in isolation um, meant that there was no contact. So I think probably the most important thing for me to establish was that, um, that people were seized in different places at different times. Um, clearly, not everybody was caught on the battlefield. Um, Researchers at the Seton Hall Law School in New Jersey had established that somewhere between 85 and 96 percent of the prisoners were not seized by U.S. forces, but were um, handed over or sold to them at a time when bounty payments um, averaging $5,000 a head were being paid. So, you know, we already have a good reason up front from the Pentagon's own, um, own um, statements as to why, you know, we, we have such a random selection of people. Um, but I, w I went through the list and the stories to break it down into who was seized in Afghanistan, who was seized crossing the border, who was seized in Pakistan, in various cities and towns in Pakistan, a long way from the border, um, and who ended up in Guantanamo through extraordinary rendition, having passed through a variety of secret prisons. Mm -hmm. And once I did that, then I could also establish... Um, you know, that people were in Afghanistan not just because they were um, fighting with the Taliban and because, uh, you know, a handful of them were involved in international terrorism, but that there were people who had gone there um, as humanitarian aid workers because the situation in Afghanistan was a disaster, both before 9-11 and afterwards. Before it had drought for years, you know, we know that it was, um, you know, it, it was a, a pretty wretched place. Um, and people had gone there to help. After 9-11 after and the U.S.-led invasion, other people went to help because, you know, they're watching the TV back in <coughs> Yemen or Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and they see the stories of these hundreds of thousands of refugees leaving Afghanistan and the dreadful situation that they're in. Um, you know, there were economic migrants who had ended up in Afghanistan. There were people who, um, you know, were told, hey, this is, a, this is an, uh, um, an attempt by the Taliban to make a pure Islamic state. Now, you know, we may choose to believe or not believe that, but that was certainly an image that was presented. And certainly a lot of people were told it's cheap to live there and you mm -hmm. won't have any problems. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily true when they got there, but this is certainly, you know, what they were told. And this happened to people who um, were in European countries who were having difficulties trying to make a living. It happened in Gulf countries where people were encouraged to do that. You know, in Pakistan, what I found out was, um, you know, there's something like 120 prisoners who were seized there, mostly in house raids. And, you know, these house raids were, um, were inept. They were, they were seizing people who'd been in Pakistan for a long time, 
Uh, a lot of them working as charity workers, hospital administrators in one particular case. Yeah. Um, a lot of people who've been there a long time and had no involvement whatsoever uh, with any terrorist activities. And, you know, we know now that part of that story was that the Pakistanis were quite happy in, in, one, in, in some ways to um, just get rid of some Arabs who've been hanging around in their country for too long. We and also let's, know let's, that, you let's... Know, what, they, what they were doing was they were responding to American demands for terrorists to be handed over. Exactly. Picking yeah. up who they could who they could pass off as terrorists. This was during the time when Pervez Musharraf, a military man, had taken control in Pakistan and was trying to earn cred with the Bush administration, the U.S. government. And uh, he, you know, it appears now that uh, he ordered them to produce some bodies and deliver them to the Americans so that he could be viewed as compliant and supportive after 9-11. And also, we can't uh, discount the money that billions of dollars were handed off uh, by the Bush administration to the Musharraf government, and we believe that much of that was siphoned off by the general himself. Yeah, well, I mean, he explicitly stated in his autobiography in 2006, Peter, that in exchange for handing over hundreds of terrorist suspects, we received millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, so, I mean, essentially, by starting to try and, um, and build up a chronology of, for, for the prisoners and then to look at their individual stories, um, you know, that, that's really, that really was my, my entrance into being able to demonstrate, hey, these are... These are not, um, you know, one monolithic mass of, of, of terrorists, faceless, nameless terrorists. Mm-hmm. These are real human beings. They all have stories. They were all captured in certain contexts. Let's just start trying to dissect that a bit, um, you know, and, and we'll see what we end up with. Um, and, and that's essentially what I've been doing for all these years. You know, I don't claim that I always know what the answer is. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily even possible to know in some cases mm-hmm. you know was this was this guy lying you know was this a guy who yeah he was there fighting with the taliban but he pretended that he was there as as a missionary well sure mm-hmm. that happened in, on on some occasions mm-hmm. um but it, you know a lot of it is probabilities based on trying to establish the bigger picture yeah. and uh, you know and I, and I think it's it's actually you know I still feel that it's that it's it worked pretty well, you know, that I was able through the research to think, hang on, the the worst that I've heard is true, that, you know, colossal mistakes were made and the majority of the people held there had nothing to do with anything. And and I stand by that. And Andy, how many individuals have you been able to meet and interview since they've been released from Guantanamo? And to what extent do their stories uh, uh, verify or validate uh, some of the, the broader reporting that we just talked about, for example, the way Pakistan rounded people up and delivered them to the U.S.? Oh, well, I mean, you know, I mean, definitely that, that's something that, that, you know, becomes abundantly clear through speaking to the British prisoners, for example. I mean, they're, they're the people that I know the best. I mean, I have met um, a few people from other countries. Um, I've been in contact with a few people from other countries. Um, you know, a, a lot of it um, is not directly through them, but I will hear about, about other prisoners um, through the discussions that the former prisoners have amongst themselves, because they 
have a particular support network. You know, they're all they all are bonded by this, you know, horribly unique experiment that they mm-hmm. went through together. Um, you know, so I, I hear quite a lot about them. Um, yeah, I mean, what can I say, really, Peter? It's, you know, it, I think it's become abundantly clear over the years that, um, that all this stuff did happen, and that very clearly, um, you know, for a lot of people that it happened to, there was no reason for it to happen at all in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that lingers on about Guantanamo is that because everything was removed from the norms, it's actually, instead of encouraging people to be skeptical, it's encouraged people to rely on the message of fear that they've been, that they've been told and not to look at it too closely. If this was happening in any kind of criminal justice context, um, I think we would all um, deservedly be appalled at the, um, at the, you know, the, the lack of evidence, the the imprecision of the evidence, the um, the rumours and hearsay and shreds of information masquerading as evidence. Um, and in fact, you know, that's why it's extremely important what's been happening over the last eighteen months in the district court, where the judges have been reviewing all the evidence. They've been looking at stuff that has not been made publicly available. They've been looking at, you know, the cumulative interrogation reports and the analyses that have come from um, from the authorities as to why they claim that these people are, are a threat, why they claim that these people were involved with, with al-Qaeda and all the Taliban. Um, and, you know, and in three-quarters of those cases nearly have, um, have not been satisfied with what the government has come up with for a variety of pretty compelling reasons, um, you know, all of which has also reinforced what I was doing through the research. And the track record of those held at Guantanamo and then taken to the military tribunals or into federal court uh, is is pretty sketchy. David Hicks, the Australian, uh, uh, did a plea bargain. Uh, Hamdan uh, was convicted but uh, given essentially a sentence of, uh, of time served. And we have the recent case of uh, uh, he got a life sentence. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. This one goes back to 2008. Yeah. Um, are, are there? W- what is the total number of people who uh, have been convicted or pled guilty uh, through the kangaroo court process related to Guantanamo? Four. Four. <laughs> yeah. This is a process that you know began in 2003-2004. Um, was ruled you know um, illegal by the Supreme Court in 2006. Was um, was brought back to life in a Frankenstein-like manner by Congress in the fall of 2006. Yes, um, you know, and and I think you know should have should have died a death on the on President Obama's first day in office when he suspended the military commissions pending a review, um, and then of course, as we know, you know, in May last year, um, he did a national security speech where everything that he'd taken off the table. He put back on the table. Um, everything was up, up uh, was possible then. Um, arbitrary detention on, uh, um, without charge or trial was back. Um, uh, so were the military commissions. Um, that's that's a key moment, really, was when the reform project, when the project to repudiate thoroughly what had happened under the Bush administration collapsed, and um, and you know, and those compromises have not. Um, I don't think they've, they've paid off for the administration. They haven't gained um, any support. They haven't weakened 
the um, the kind of hysterical and unprincipled and, and endless right wing assaults on them. And um, and uh, those those moves are supported by Democrats. The funding yeah. to close Guantanamo, the uh, determination to try uh, uh, the so-called 9/11 suspects in New York, and the plan to uh, move some of these people who they claim need to be held without charge or trial indefinitely to a prison in Illinois. All of that has been blocked not only by right-wing Republicans, but with the clear public complicity of many Democrats. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, and I mean, that, that's not, all of that clearly is not within, um, within the control of the president and his close advisors by any means. I mean, I think the uphill struggle is, um, you know, is a colossal uphill struggle. But that said, um, you know, he failed to, um, to push sufficiently on these issues as though they mattered. He has not, in the end, decided that they mattered enough. What mattered more was trying to keep people sweet, um, you know, and it has led to a position where on national security issues and on the legacy of the Bush administration, you know, he has ended up being a great disappointment and is, in, and is essentially, I think, almost trapped in a position where um, it's extremely difficult to actually close this place. And I, I think he started off wanting to, and it's now considerably more difficult. But, you know, to go back to the commissions for a minute, I just don't think their heart is really in it. You know, I, I think that they, um, you know, they decided to bring them back because that was some advice they were getting was, ooh, maybe not federal court trials for everybody. What about trying to bring have federal court trials and then have the military commissions, and let's see whether we can have two systems. I mean, you know, that, that, why was that going to work from the beginning? I don't think it was. I think it was a compromise. And, of course, you know, when they then, in November, um, on the same day Eric Holder announced, right, five guys are going to be charged in federal court, and five guys are going to be charged in military commissions. That just looks ridiculous. But also, having made both options available, they then enabled the backlash to happen, when people started to turn around and say, we don't want these guys to have federal court trials. We want everybody to have military commission trials. You know, they shouldn't have brought it back. And they brought it back working with Congress. You know, I mean, what President Obama said was, President Bush decided that his executive authority was such that he didn't actually need to involve anybody else. Well, we're going to work with Congress. So last summer they worked with Congress, and Congress... It was actually the lawmakers who had decided that material support to terrorism um, could be a war crime. Um, There actually is no evidence that that there is any truth in this. And and last summer when Congress was working with the administration to revive the commissions again, senior officials within the administration tried to tell Congress, we don't believe that material support is even going to work. We think it's going to be overturned on appeal. But they, you know, Congress didn't listen. So, you know, actually, it's kind of ironic that having moved from President Bush's position where he felt that he could do what the hell he wanted, um, working with Congress has not really played that much to President Obama's advantage when it comes on these issues. In fact, you know, Congress repeatedly, um, as as you mentioned, Peter, has been blocking every attempt to resolve this issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really shameful. And the other thing that I can't get out of my mind is the image of Obama uh, trying to uh, appease different factions 
uh, giving that speech at the National Archives in front of the Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> and that, to me, is so cynical and uh, uh, full of spin that uh, it, it's, it's very hard to forgive. And it, it would be one thing if it were a practical policy you know, that, that, that had some benefit that, that uh, you know, we could say, okay, well, at least. But as you pointed out, um, having these two tracks running essentially at the same time just shows the arbitrary nature of the determination about who gets to go into federal court and who gets to face a kangaroo court. Yeah, or even with the third one as well, that if they, um, if they uh, think that you're um, you're somehow troublesome, but they, they don't have the evidence, then there's a third option. You don't even get a trial at all, um, you know, Yeah. which is even worse. Well, it, it sure is. <laughs> and it, it's, it's immoral and it's inhumane, and it is beneath the standards that we claim as a country. And uh, I, I just personally am deeply embarrassed by it. Now, let, let's do a quick recap here. 181 individuals remain at Guantanamo Bay, Ninety-seven of those have been approved by the task force for release. And of the 97, uh, approximately 60 of them are from the nation of Yemen. And since the underpants bomber attempting to uh, blow up a plane on the way into Detroit last Christmas uh, was revealed to have connections to people in Yemen, there has been a moratorium uh, imposed by the Obama administration on further releases, even though these 60 individuals have been approved by the task force. And the courts are nibbling away at this moratorium. Tell us a little bit about this process, Andy, and it appears to me that the moratorium can't hold. Uh, it's becoming a, a curtain of Swiss cheese. Yeah, well, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, the, the, what's provoked um, people to start questioning the moratorium is the case of a man called Mohammed Hassan Azaini, who um, won his habeas corpus petition in the district court back in May, um, at the end of May. So I think it's probably six or seven weeks ago now. Um, now, you know, the, the judge was extremely critical of the government forever, having brought the case before him. Um, this is a young man who was a student at a university in Pakistan who was staying the night with other students at their house when that house was raided and everybody was rounded up and taken to Guantanamo. Um, some, of the, some of the other people in the house who were students have already been released. One won a particularly um, notable habeas corpus petition last May, May 2009. Um, you know, there are, there are other, uh, other Yemenis who were in the house and a few people of other nationalities who haven't yet had their habeas corpus petitions, but a Russian recently won one. So the, the whole story of this house having any connection or involvement with, with terrorism has clearly fallen apart. Now, these aren't the only Yemenis that the, that the administration has a problem with, but in Odaini's case, this young man, you know, it became apparent through the judge's ruling that almost from the moment that he arrived in Guantanamo, interrogators knew that he had no involvement with al-Qaeda or terrorism whatsoever, um, in fact, the first interrogator who wrote about it said, look, just exploit him for what he knows about the people that he stayed the night with in that house, and that's it, let's get rid of him. Um, so it went on and on. He was cleared, he was cleared by Bush, he was cleared by the Obama administration task force. Still, they, the Justice Department, nobody said to them, don't send this case to the district court. So, you know, it gets to the district court, 
um, he throws it out. It became so embarrassing that, you know, it was picked up by some of the major media mm -hmm. who haven't really been paying that much attention to these stories. Um, you know, so two weeks ago, the administration said, OK, we're going to probably have to make an exception for this guy. Don't think that the moratorium doesn't hold. We're going to have to make an exception and send him home. They still haven't sent him home. Um, then, uh, then officials were speaking to the Washington Post and the New York Times about these issues and saying there is a bigger problem here, which is that, you know, dozens of these Yemenis are probably going to win their habeas petitions. Um, is it not going to start looking a bit embarrassing mm -hmm. when the government keeps losing in, in court, but these men are not released? Well, it should be, um, you know, it should be incredibly embarrassing. Um, it's unbelievably unjust to be even contemplating that this should happen. Um, but that's the kind of ridiculous world that we're in now, Peter. And, you know, the, I read a bit, it was in the papers of the weekend. This is just the most extraordinary thing, I think. This was in the New York Times. Um, that Charlie Savage of the New York Times was told that the Justice Department is basically now going to the district court to defend the detention of people that it knows it has no justification for trying to keep imprisoned. Yeah? So well, what and, happened and let's... was that when people were going to be released as a result of the task force's deliberations, then their habeas cases were put on hold. Um, now there's a moratorium in place. Their habeas petitions in a lot of cases are, are ongoing again. So this is the absurd situation that we're in, is the Justice Department lawyers are trying to defend the detention of people that they know the task force has said can be released. Now, Andy, let me clarify a couple of things. I have Charlie Savage's article from uh, Friday, July 9th in front of me. And first, uh, I've interviewed Charlie, and I have a high regard for him. Uh, he came out of the Boston Globe, was hired by the Times a couple of years ago, and continues to uh, do some great investigative reporting. The quote that you referred to, a White House official declined to comment on the policy, but uh, when disclosing the decision to repatriate Odiani, the administration emphasized that the moratorium remained firm. We are not lifting the overall suspension on detainee transfers to Yemen, and this should not be viewed as a reflection of a broader policy for other Yemeni detainees. Now, <laughs> the, the uh, hypocrisy of that, the duality of that comment is uh, readily apparent. Yeah, well, it is, you know. And I mean, you know, plus the bottom line of this, Peter, is that the reason that men held for eight years in Guantanamo could not be sent back to Yemen, even if they'd been cleared by Bush, um, you know, by military review boards under Bush, even if they'd been cleared by Obama's um, uh, interagency task force, even if they're cleared by the court, is because what essentially that mor moratorium asserts is that if you are a Yemeni, you are a terrorist suspect. If you are any Yemeni, you are a terrorist suspect, because the whole of Yemen is regarded as a suspicious country, um, that, it, that it is not possible to release anybody there, innocent people, it is not possible to release to that country, because what? Because, because they must all be potential terrorists. That people released there will be radicalized, will be recruited into some militant organization um, the moment that they're off the plane, and will start attacking the United States. You know, logically, this is insane. Then, Andy, clarify for me, here's paragraph three of Savage's article, uh, and we'll get to the case that leads the story in a moment. But he says, that ruling follows by two weeks the Obama administration's quiet decision to repatriate another Yemeni detainee whom you mentioned, Oda'ini. 
He was ordered freed in May by Judge Henry Kennedy Jr., who issued a scathing opinion denouncing the effort to keep imprisoning him despite overwhelming evidence that he was innocent of Qaeda ties. Now, you mentioned that he still has not been released, but the Charlie Savage article here in the New York Times suggested that they have decided to repatriate him. So on what schedule, and what's their hurry? Well, uh, you know, or what's their lack of hurry? Well, well that, 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 that was tongue-in-cheek, sir. military sorry. to get a plane to fly a man to Yemen? Yeah. Surely it shouldn't take very long. I suspect what's happening, because of these stories in, you know, Charlie Savage's article and articles in the Washington Post talking about how they're going to lose dozens of habeas cases, is that they are sitting around going, like, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, are we just going to release this guy, or are we actually going to have to, um, you know, put our head above the parapet and do the right thing? You know, because there are no ifs and buts about this. I mean, when officials were talking to the Washington Post, they said, we have nothing on this kid. There is nothing there. We cannot possibly justify his ongoing detention. Um, you know, it's a sliding scale of stuff. You know, what they were saying to butter up the critics was, he's from a good family. When does it matter whether you're from a good family as to whether you should be released if you're innocent? You know, what are we saying now? You're not going to release an innocent man from a prison if you don't approve of his family background. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Is that really the message that you want to put out to the world? Yeah. Because that is what they're saying. They're saying, actually, it's really hard work for us. We've got so many people who are giving us a hard time and being critical that we can't release an innocent man if we don't approve of his family background. That's just, that's just disgusting. Well, it's bullshit. We can call it that. Yeah, we can. Yeah. So the case that leads this article by Charlie Savage is that on Thursday, July 8th, Judge Paul Friedman told the Obama administration to release a different Yemeni detainee, Hussein Salem uh, Mohammed Al-Murfedi, yeah. saying there was no legal basis to keep him in prison after he has been held for almost eight years without trial. Yeah. Uh, so the, we have now a pattern that is developing, yet the administration wants to say, well, these are just exceptions. Uh, but since the 60 Yemenis uh, in Toto have been cleared for release, how can they possibly hope to maintain this facade that uh, simply, as you point out, because of their family background, because of their nationality, that they are a risk and therefore cannot be released? Well, I don't know. They need to find some spine and say to their critics, look, it really is not acceptable under any circumstances to, um, to hold people um, who, you know, one after another, different organizations, different setups have said there is no justification for holding this person. If a military review board under Bush, Obama's, uh, you know, task force containing people from across the government and the agencies and the district court in, in, in Washington, D.C., all say, what are you doing holding this guy? You can't, you know, you must let him go. He, he, you can't do this anymore. How can you keep defending that to people? How can you not have the spine to stand up to your critics and say, guys, sometimes you have to do what's right. What you are asking us to do is unconstitutional, it's wrong, it's immoral, it's unjustifiable. You need to wake up a bit. And this is what's been lacking all along, is there is hardly anybody in the administration that is ever prepared to demonstrate any backbone to critics by pointing out to them what's wrong, why they're wrong, and what is the right thing to do. And, you know, and I don't care about political expediency, and I don't care about not rocking in the boat and all of that. When things are clearly right and wrong and those are involved, somebody needs to stand up and say that.
Andy, one of the other stories that you recently reported is that three individuals who were released from Guantanamo and were stashed in Slovakia because they couldn't be repatriated to their native countries are complaining that the conditions in Slovakia are far worse than what they put up with at Guantanamo. And they've launched a hunger strike to try to draw attention to that situation. Yeah. Tell us about these guys. Well, these guys are, um, you know, are three of the people who were um, cleared by the task force. Um, I think in, um, in certainly in one or two of those cases had been cleared by, by um, military review boards under President Bush. Um, so, you know, had been in a position where they could have left Guantanamo from 2006, 2007, but, you know, were stuck there because of the countries that they're from and the, and the very serious risk that they would be tortured or otherwise ill-treated if they were repatriated. One's an Egyptian, one's a Tunisian, um, and one's the only Azerbaijani who was ever held in Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as part of this, this um, scrabbling around, endless scrabbling around that's been involved to find other countries who are prepared to help clean up um, the problem of Guantanamo, um, you know, Daniel Freed, who is Obama's special envoy, has... Uh, my joke, as I always say, and it's probably true, is that he has more air miles than just about anybody on Earth from shuttling around endlessly from country to country, um, trying to get other countries to take these men, and having to put up always with the first question, why are you asking us to do this when you won't do anything yourself? Every single time that question is the first question that is asked, to which Daniel Freed presumably has to say, confidentially, chaps, you, have no un- un- you, you need to understand that when it comes to lawmakers, we have the most unprincipled, ridiculous people on Earth putting every obstacle in the, in the way of the president. Um, and we also have some pretty rough people in some of our courts as well. Because the plan was to um, bring two of the Chinese guys, the Uyghurs, to live in the United States last spring. This was the, uh, this was the idea of, um, of President Obama's former White House counsel, the man who resigned at the end of last year, um, uh, Greg Craig. Mm-hmm. You know, he had worked out that not only was this the right thing to do, but that it was going to make it a hell of a lot easier to get other people to help out if America was seen to take cleared prisoners itself. And nobody comes more cleared than the Uyghurs. You know, these Chinese guys who were, um, you know, escaping from Chinese oppression um, who were in Afghanistan, crossed the border into Pakistan, seized by villages and sold to the Americans. Um, but, you know, President Obama, this, around the same time as the national security speech, um, you know, uh, um, back down on the plan. He, he bowed to criticism and, and said, I'm not taking my critics on about this. Yeah. So you, that's why. You, now, Slovakia, you know, is a country that, you know, now did they, did they secure some kind of diplomatic favors as a result of this? Well, I'm sure they did. Um, but, you know, the problem is with Slovakia is not, I don't think, that, they, um, that they've been malevolent in any way towards these men. It's just that they weren't really equipped to deal with the situation of the unique situation of having to offer new homes to three people who had been in Guantanamo, um, who are clearly going to be in a bit of a state, to put it mildly, after all that, um, and that they didn't really know what to do. Now, I think that they weren't given sufficient guidance by the United States because I don't think that there's anything in place to do that. So what the Slovakians did was that they put them in a detention camp for um, asylum seekers. Um, you know, and, the, and, the, and after six months, what happened was that the guys had been told 
we are, we'll sort out housing for you and we'll put you in a house in a town somewhere and try and integrate you in this country that is going to be your new home. But um, the hunger strike was prompted when apparently they were told, oh, no, actually, it's going to take a while, so we're going to put you in another detention camp for another six months. And, you know, they're, they're, behind, they're effectively in a prison. They're in a yeah. kind of, you know... Well, let me, let me read a quote from... Uh, th- this appears to be from El Ghazar, the Egyptian. In Guantanamo, I was allowed to be outside for 20 hours a day. Here, I'm allowed to go out only for one hour. I have no idea why. In Guantanamo, I was allowed to pray with other Muslims, but here, that's not allowed either. They say it would be a security risk. Why? I do not understand. No one from the Slovak authorities has spoken to us. When I ask about all these things, they keep saying the same thing, that they do not have time to talk to us. He added, in other countries, people like us get spending money, housing, and Internet connections. We're not allowed the Internet. Why not? They will not tell us. So they, they are effectively being held under uh, maximum security conditions. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think the Slovakian authorities would say that they're trying to protect them. Um, and there are certainly are security issues that, you know, um, you know, perhaps the whole thing wasn't thought out properly. Perhaps the situation in Slovakia is such that had these guys been moved immediately into a town and put in the house, um, maybe they would have been targeted by racists or something. I mean, you know, these are all kind of plausible um, but whatever the situation is, the end result has been that something hasn't been thought through very well. And if you think that these guys, you know, almost certainly, if maybe maybe one or two of them are managing to keep their heads together without any any support, I mean, their, their families aren't there. It's a totally new country. Um, but, you know, what generally happens to people um, who come out of their experience in Guantanamo is that they have post-traumatic stress disorder and they need counseling. They need support. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just not, it's not really been working out very well. And I think that, you know, I, I'm full of admiration for countries that are, that are helping out when America won't do anything itself. I'm, I just wish, for a variety of reasons, that, that some, some of these wrongly imprisoned men had been brought to the United States. And not just because it would be the right thing to do, but also, Peter, because it would puncture so much of the uh, right-wing scaremongering, or even the scaremongering from Democrats, yeah. it would puncture so much of it. I mean, can you imagine? The American media would descend en masse on whoever it was. And, uh, hey, what would they discover? They would discover that these people weren't terrorists, and that these people never were terrorists. It would have been the most... Um, it would have been the best way of demonstrating what I've been trying to do here for four years, which is that, you know... Colossal mistakes were made at Guantanamo, um, and it would have demonstrated it in such an easy manner. It would have been appropriate. It would have been the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now, finally, Andy, tell us a little bit about the recent guilty plea from Ibrahim Al-Kosi, Q-O-S-I. Yeah, well, I'm glad we, we came back to that, actually, because, we, you know, when we were discussing the commissions before, I mean, I, you know, I, I did really want to say that, you know, that I don't think that the, that the Obama administration's heart is really in it. It's part of its um, compromising um, attempts to close Guantanamo, and compromise really is not the way to do it. So, you know, what they've been trying to do um, is reach deals, you know, not go for trials. Trials are going to be a bit of a mess for them, frankly, to be honest. And especially as you've had this concession from very senior officials last summer that they don't think that the material support to terrorism charges will stand up on appeal. Well, all they have 
um, apart from that, is conspiracy, essentially. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about the, the, the big cases of people accused of actual involvement in the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm. As it stands at the moment, they're still scheduled to face federal court trials. I hope that, that you know, the administration doesn't back down. In the military commissions, you know, for the most part, we seem to be dealing um, with lesser figures, or certainly that's what we have with Al-Khosi, who was, um, you know, involved to some extent with um, Osama bin Laden when he was in Sudan. He's Sudanese himself. I think he was involved in the company that bin Laden was involved in. But bin Laden was involved in a lot of actual companies when he was in Sudan. But anyway, he followed him to Afghanistan, and he seems to have worked as um, a bit of a driver, um, a cook for a compound. Um, I think at one point he, he was a cook for the bachelors at a certain compound that Osama bin Laden went to. Somebody else was cooking for the men who had families. He was cooking for the bachelors. He's clearly, you know, he's clearly working for Osama bin Laden, working for al-Qaeda as a paid employee. Um, I don't think that there would be any way that you would be able to demonstrate that he... Um, had any um, conspiratorial involvement with them. I don't think that this man could be portrayed as a decision-maker in any way. Um, and to me, that was quite analogous to the case of Salim Hamdan, yeah. who was the man who was convicted. He got five months on top of the time he had already served, and is now a free man in Yemen, who had driven a car for money for Osama bin Laden. I thought, okay, you know, given, the, given career choices, maybe at the time he took that decision, he could have done something else. But, you know, the, the military jury failed to, um, to grant the conspiracy charge. They, they refused that. They knew that this man wasn't involved in plotting. He wasn't involved in any operational manner. He just drove the car. Um, I think Alcozzi seems to me pretty similar. But by doing a deal, um, you know, they've managed to package the whole thing up. So I think that they can sell that as though it's something more significant than it actually is. He, he, you know, he, he, one of, part of the plea was that he, he pleaded guilty to one count of material support and one count of conspiracy. So, uh, you know, that packages him up um, as more significant than he was, I think. And, and the reason it was done? Well, it enables him, when the, um, when the verdict is announced in a couple of weeks, whatever it's going to be, but it will enable him uh, to know that, it, that you know, whatever is decided, at some point he's going home, that's it, it's over, the ordeal is over. Um, it allows the administration to um, not have to go through all that hassle uh, of trying to, trying to do this through a trial, you know, which is complicated for a variety of reasons. I mean, not just that this guy at some point along the line was subjected to some pretty nasty treatment, um, but the fundamental flaws in their story of how significant he was. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of Alcozy, my suspicion from this distance, Andy, is that he couldn't handle the open-ended nature of uh, being, you know, just held without charge and that he kind of wanted to get it over with and yeah. and take his chances on what the sentence might be. And it, it reminds me, uh, I've spent uh, some of my time assisting uh, prisoners at San Quentin, which is near where I live here in California. Yeah, I know it very well from the Johnny Cash song, actually. Okay. (laughs) And uh, so one of the things I I recall talking to a life prisoner who had been sentenced to life with the possibility of parole, but the parole board is so politicized that uh, it felt hopeless. And he said to me one day, he said, Peter, 
you know, if they'll just give me a, an actual determinate sentence of, of five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, no matter what it is. He yeah. said, if I know how long it is, his phrase was, I can start whacking away at it. He yeah. said, but living with the unknown, with this unlimited type of detention, he said, it's the most miserable experience you can imagine for a human being. Yes, well, exactly. And that, in a nutshell, is Guantanamo. Andy, in this article about Alcosi, you mentioned David Iglesias. He's a man I've talked to and I have respect for. He was a United States attorney in New Mexico who was fired on orders from Karl Rove and from Senator Domenici because he refused to bring false charges of voter fraud uh, in uh, timed to coincide with the 2006 elections in New Mexico. He is now at uh, Guantanamo. Tell us a little bit about Iglesias, and uh, he ended up as a spokesman for the prosecution office of the military commissions on the Alcosi case. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I think you know more about him than I do, actually, Peter. Okay. But, um, you know, I mean, his role there, you know, all I saw of his role there was that he was a spokesman talking about this particular deal, um, you know, and I thought he was fair on that. I mean, I think there are some other comments attributed to him where he's, well, he's doing what is required of you if you're going to be a spokesperson for the prosecution, which is that you, you know, you talk up with confidence what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now I don't know how much of that is a, is a front. Um, you know, I, I think after all this time and after all the doubts that have been expressed at the highest levels, that actually um, it would be pretty hard to find somebody who's, you know, 100% convinced about what they're doing. Um, in the way that it would have been maybe five years ago, um, mm-hmm. I think that I think that the whole thing is a bit of a sham. Um, but you know, I, I I obviously you know can't can't particularly single out anybody for criticism for doing their job. Um, I mean, you know, essentially, when people get to these trials, however much there may still be problems with them, you know, pretty fundamental problems of war crimes trials for crimes that aren't war crimes. <laughs> you know, it doesn't get more fundamental than that. But there is an adversarial system at work. You know, yeah. uh, at least there is something going on. I mean, how much better is it for these people who are presumed to be so dangerous that they can be put on trial, even though they're only dangerous in terms of cooking or driving? Um, how much more fortunate are they than these 48 people that the task force suggested are going to be held indefinitely um, because the whatever evidence there is, um, nobody wants to even put forward for trial. And you have a quote from David Iglesias uh, about Alcosi. He was somewhere between a foot soldier and less than a general. We are not talking about robbing a 7-Eleven in Hialeah. We're talking about war crimes. Now, that that's conflicting in itself because, yeah, the record showed that he drove him, he was a cook, maybe a bodyguard, um, but to claim that those are war crimes, um, well, that, that sets a new, much lower standard for war crimes, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely it does. And I mean, you know, I mean, you're right. I mean, that, that sentence taken in its totality just jumps around all over the place with, with drawing comparisons that just don't exist. Yeah. Um, you know, he was, yeah, he, he was clearly much, much, much less significant than the general. Um, and the fact is, where are you conjuring w- war crimes out of? Well, presumably from the same place that people are trying to justify the prosecution of Omar Khadr for war crimes. Um, you know, that this, this former child, uh, Omar Khadr, who, who's just sacked his lawyers, um, 
you know, um, because he thinks that the whole system is, is rigged and because he didn't trust the deal that he was offered. You know, again, there's another deal going on. There's going to be more deals coming up. But he didn't trust it. But Omar Khadr, you know, the, what, the, the key to Omar Khadr's story is that he supposedly threw this grenade that killed a U.S. soldier at the time of his capture in July 2002, even though there is another narrative that says, no, he didn't. He was face down unconscious and seriously wounded under a pile of rubble at the time the grenade was thrown. But even if he did, why is that a war crime? Nobody has ever adequately, um, you know, nobody's even answered this question in, in a way that I regard as remotely adequate. Why is it a war crime? What it essentially is, um, is demonstrating in his case is that what happened after 9-11 is that U.S. soldiers are soldiers, but anybody who fights against them is a terrorist. And mm. I just don't, I really don't think it's acceptable. Yeah. And, you know, and I know they desperately, the administration wants a deal for Kevin, not just because, you know, this is going to be the first time since the Second World War um, that, the, you know, the United States is leading this campaign to put a former child soldier um, on, on trial for war crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that they know that this war crimes um, story is flimsy. What are we talking about here? This is ridiculous. And one more item, Andy. You have two stories at andyworthington.co.uk regarding uh, possible investigations. And one inquiry has been announced by the new Cameron government, and you say that this is being greeted cautiously by human rights activists. Tell us about the nature of this. Well, this is essentially an investigation into the complicity of the British intelligence services and, and therefore also of, of you know, government ministers who may have known about what was going on. In the torture of British citizens or residents in other countries, so by the um, security services in other countries, with the complicity of the British government. They're trying to ascertain to what extent the British knew about what was happening um, in countries that used torture and whether the British government was actively or passively using the fruits of torture, um, you know, for information, um, that could be used operationally or that has even found its way into the judicial system. Um, so, you know, they're pretty crucial, pretty crucial questions about complicity in torture. Um, and it's remarkable that, you know, we've even got so far as having a new government that has announced that it's going to take place. Now, problems, of course, are that, you know, it's going to be held in secret. Is it, um, is it a whitewash? Is it going to reach some kind of conclusions but hide them all? Is the information not going to come out? Um, But I think up front, perhaps some of the bigger questions um, immediately about this involve um, former prisoners, former British prisoners in Guantanamo, who have a number of court cases ongoing. There is an investigation by the British police of of some of the intelligence agents involved in a couple of cases. Um, All of this stuff is ongoing. And what the Prime Minister, David Cameron, has said is that he wants this sorted out before the inquiry takes place. Um, And he has spoken about compensation. So it looks to me as though, you know, they might want to um, waive um, an unfeasibly large amount of money at these people um, in an attempt to get them to say, "Okay, we'll take the money and we'll drop our complaints. Um, Now, I don't think that's going to happen for a couple of reasons. One thing that I think is interesting is that Chaka Armour, the last British resident in Guantanamo, is still held. 
mm-hmm. even though he was cleared by Bush in 2007. Um, there appears to be no reason that he's held upon the fact that he knows too much about what has happened in Guantanamo. Um, and I don't think that any of the former prisoners are going to talk to anybody about any deal without him being released. So that's an interesting one. Yeah. They will demand his release before they even think about talking. Um, but, you know, I don't know what would happen if I was in their position and somebody offered me, you know what, a million pounds, you know? Um, would I take it? I don't know. Um, my feeling from what I know of, of some of the former British prisoners is that actually, no, it's not about the money. They wouldn't be able to live with themselves if they took the money in exchange for dropping their demands that, um, that this needs thoroughly investigating, it needs opening up to public scrutiny, and, it needs, and we need to make sure that it never happens again. Um, you know, and I think that's what drives them. I think that's what's driving them far more than any um, attempt to buy them off, you know, even if we could perceive levels of cynicism in, the, in what the government's trying to do. Um, I, I don't see that happening. So I, I don't think it's... I, I'm not sure what it's established yet. I think there's a lot still to be worked out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have to say that however compromised it is, um, you know, it, it's progress of a sort that we simply have not seen in the United States. Indeed. We, we don't even ask the questions. Uh, and even on the left, there is not uh, any uh, persisting demands uh, to get us back in compliance with constitutional and, uh, and treaty regulations and to expose the wrongdoing that has clearly occurred uh, in, in the last uh, eight years or so. Well, Andy, thank you again for a, a great update uh, and for the work that you do. I want to once again mention your website, andyworthington.co.uk. You can also order the book, The Guantanamo Files, uh, I believe from Amazon.com. Yeah. Uh, all that supports the work of uh, our good friend, Andy Worthington. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a pleasure as always. Bonjour, this is Veronique Raskin. I am the CEO of the Organic Wine Company, and I want to personally invite you to join the Peter B. Monthly Organic Wine Club. Call me for the details, and I do answer my phone, at one eight 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 eco wine or visit us at www.theorganicwinecompany.com. A bientôt, j'espère. Merci. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. Over our Memorial Day weekend here in America, activists of an international group formed a flotilla of six ships that once again challenged the Israeli blockade of Gaza. And in the pre-dawn hour darkness, Israeli helicopters and gunboats approached the flotilla. In international waters, it's very important to stress that. And as you now know, there was an altercation. There was conflict between the raiding Israeli soldiers and some of the Turkish individuals on the ship Mavi Marmara. That was the largest of the six boats that were heading toward Gaza. Nine of those individuals, including one young man with a dual U.S.-Turkish citizenship, 
were killed by the Israelis. And in the hours and days and weeks following that, the Obama administration signaled that it was unhappy that this had occurred. But Obama and Secretary of State Clinton resisted demands from activists in this country and people from across the world for an, uh, an unfettered and uh, independent investigation of this conflict. And as you know from our previous podcast with Paul LaRudy, one of the organizers of the Free Palestine Movement, who was on one of the other boats in that flotilla. This is outrageous. And so there was a shift there where Obama canceled a meeting with Netanyahu that had been scheduled for the 1st of June. But that meeting was rescheduled and it was a love fest when Netanyahu came to Washington a week ago. There was no public mention of the events of May 31st. And while Israel has moved on a public relations front to ease the damage from May 31st and from the ongoing blockade of Gaza by rewriting the rules of restrictions of what can go in and out, the blockade itself remains. It's a kinder, gentler blockade from the Israeli point of view. And yes, the death of those nine people did prompt international reaction, condemnation of Israel by Turkey. And Egypt responded by easing its border controls at Rafah. But on July 12th, the results of an Israeli military investigation were released. It was headed by Major General Gioria Eiland, E-I-L-A-N-D, and it found that while high-level officials had committed errors in judgment, no one in the military had behaved negligently. The report avoids recommendations that would have led to the demotion of military personnel or any other strong actions. Island is quoted as saying, We found that there were some professional mistakes regarding both the intelligence and the decision-making process and some operational mistakes. No mention that this assault occurred in international waters and was an act of piracy. Parts of the report were declassified, given to reporters by an official who insisted on being identified only as a senior military official involved in the investigation. The full 100-page report was given directly to Israeli Defense Forces head Gabi Ashkenazi and several other high-ranking military officials. Ashkenazi announced that he'd adopt all of its recommendations. The report praises individual commandos who took part in the raid, but cites flawed intelligence for underestimating the potential for violence on the Marmara. Despite three months of preparation before the flotilla arrived, various intelligence-gathering units in the Israeli military didn't communicate with one another. 
It says the IDF failed to prepare a backup plan in the event of uh, violence. Now, what's important here, though, is that there was no independent investigation, and I have no indication from this news account, that the Israeli military investigation team interviewed even one of the passengers on these ships. Maybe they did, but there's no indication whatsoever that they did and that they got their point of view. Now, as you may know, the Israeli forces descended from helicopters repelling down lines and were told that they were armed with paintball guns. However, that's contradicted by this line here, a gun that was probably seized from the first soldier to repel onto the ship from a Black Hawk helicopter was used to fire on the second soldier who descended onto the ship. Not a paintball gun. Just described as a gun. Now this is where it gets interesting. He added that a bullet extracted from the knee of one of the soldiers was not of a sort that the IDF uses, proving that the passengers had their own weapons, ammo, and a readiness to instigate violence. Now keep in mind, it's being described as instigating violence. These people are on a peaceful mission. When they are invaded, under cover of darkness, by Israeli forces, clambering onto their ship from a helicopter. I think that's called self-defense. And I wanted to see those on the flotilla remain completely peaceful. I don't countenance violence. But I can understand resistance. I can understand using available means to repel an invading force. I'm a sailor. And if somebody tried to take over my boat, climb onto it, I would resist. I'd use a paddle or (laughs) a winch handle or something else that was available. Maybe a kitchen knife. Well, that's what the people did on these ships. And while it broke ranks with the protocol of peaceful nonviolence, that's how it occurred. But for the Israelis to rewrite this, and always create the impression that they have every right to invade this ship, subdue its passengers, and that they become victims when those passengers resist or threw one of the soldiers over, or in the case now reported, apparently took a gun from one soldier and shot another guy. Nowhere does Israel acknowledge that it was in violation of of treaties, international maritime law, and the basic moral rights of these individuals. And so this may be the only investigation, the only report on the events of May 31st, 2010. It's incomplete. It's one-sided. It is, in simple terms, a whitewash. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. 
Check this song out from Neil Young, the album Living With War. Looking for a leader to bring our country home. Reunite the red, white, and blue before it turns to stone. How about a little investigation? How about a little transparency? Walking among our people, there's someone straight and strong to lead us from desolation in a broken world. Yeah, back in the darkness of the Bush administration, Neil Young was looking for a leader. Maybe it's a woman or a black man after all, he's saying. And we got a candidate who promised us some change. And implicitly, I believe that Barack Obama stood for a return to constitutional rule. That's simple. I didn't see him as a dangerous lefty, uh, an out liberal. But I saw him as someone deeply offended by the excesses of the Bush era and determined to right them. And he began with his announcement to close Guantanamo, which was then thwarted from left and right and is now one of those cast-off campaign promises and day-one commitments that they hope people will just forget about. We spent a lot of time with Andy Worthington talking about Guantanamo and those failures. Roger Schuler returns to our program today. He's a blogger in Alabama. He's done excellent coverage of the Don Siegelman case and writes about other issues as well. You can reach him on the web at legalschnauzer.blogspot.com, and I'll include a link in the show information file so you can get there real easily. Roger, welcome back to our show today. Thank you, Peter. That's a strong Neil Young song, by the way. Uh, it was that written when about, about four years ago. It, it was it was released, I believe, in two thousand six. In two thousand six. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, a little prophetic and uh, well, <laughs> very powerful. He he's quite a guy. He is. It reminds me of some of John Fogarty's work. He he's done uh, some interesting songs about the Bush era. You mentioned John Fogarty, and this is a great song that he wrote about Bush and Cheney. Full of anger and passion called I Can't Take It No More. Yeah, thanks for the reminder on that one, Roger. That's a great tune, and also Long Dark Night was on the uh, same release. 
And from a guy who, you know, did Suzy Q and a lot of songs that didn't have much powerful content, it really was quite a statement. Well, it, it is, and it's interesting that he, uh, I'm a big fan of his going, of course, back to the CCR days, and uh, that he takes a lot of grief. He has a lot of conservative fans, and, and I follow one or two of the message boards, and a lot of them uh, love his music but but don't like his uh, uh, his political uh, leanings, and, and John is successful enough. He just says, "Well, <laughs> screw you." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, he he came through Birmingham on that tour, uh, the revival tour, and, and my wife and I were fortunate enough to get to see him, and it, it was one of the thrills of my life. He he, if, if anybody hasn't seen him and gets a chance, he's in his, getting close to mid sixties, I think. I, I really would encourage him. He's a uh, an American classic, I think. Yeah, he sure is. He lives right across the bay from me in uh, El Cerrito, and I was frustrated because when he released those uh, songs, I tried real hard to get an interview with him, and uh, he's with some record label that doesn't have a PR team, so I, I oh. couldn't, I couldn't reach him. Uh huh. Well, he, he's a, he would be an excellent interview for you. Yeah, I'd love to very, talk to. Very him. smart guy, and and uh, and very vibrant. Well, enough about John Fogarty. I want to talk about Roger Schuler, and also I want to talk about Don Siegelman. I had a chance to catch up with the governor uh, about a week ago in a recent podcast, and he's guardedly optimistic that the Supreme Court ruling in the Enron case uh, regarding CEO Jeffrey Skilling, which overturned the Honest Services statute, uh, will get him some relief. But he seems really wary of that 11th Circuit Court in Atlanta. And he's hoping for an on-bank, uh, the entire court, to review his case instead of just a three-judge panel, which is what he's encountered in the past. What's your take, Roger, on the Supreme Court ruling and how it affects the uh, the siegelman uh convictions? Well, I think uh, Governor Siegelman is absolutely right to be wary of the 11th Circuit uh, because it, the case never should have gotten to this point. Uh, it, it should have been, uh, well, it never should have gotten to the 11th Circuit. It, 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 with an honest judge, it would have never gotten even to the jury at the district court level. But just assume, you know, they messed it up at the trial and, and it goes to the 11th Circuit. Uh, just simply based on the jury instructions being incorrect. Uh, essentially, uh, these two men, Don Siegelman and Richard Scrushy, were committed of a crime that doesn't exist. Uh, because the jury was given uh, instructions that describe a, <laughs> something that doesn't exist under the law. And and, and the, the layers of this uh, we've been over before, but just to touch on them briefly, we had a judge who was deeply conflicted, should have recused himself. We had a prosecutor who claimed she recused herself because she's married to Carl Rove's uh, former business partner. That's Laura Canary and her husband, Bill. She technically recused herself, but we know from email traffic that uh, she stayed involved in the case after formally recusing herself. She still serves as a U.S. attorney in, uh, in a district there in Alabama. And so the, the layers here um, are overwhelming. And what's amazing is that it's the Roberts Supreme Court that has given Governor Siegelman a hope of some relief and the opportunity to clear his name while the Solicitor General, uh, who is uh, uh, on her way to confirmation to a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court, Elena Kagan, uh, uh, gratuitously uh, wrote a brief uh, in the Siegelman appeal 
uh, basically rejecting his claims. And if I'm correct, she was encouraging a, a longer prison sentence for the governor. Isn't that right? I, I believe you're correct on that, Peter. She, she definitely did encourage the Supreme Court not to hear the appeal. And which, uh, for those of us who followed, have followed this case for, for a number of years now, it's just, it just blows your mind. Um, and I hear people um, excuse that by saying, well, that's what the administration wanted her to do, and so on and so forth. And number one, you wonder, why would the, a Democratic administration take that stance? Uh, and then number two, as someone who's going to, you know, looks like be sitting on the Supreme Court, doesn't she, uh, you know, have have a little stronger uh, institution than that, uh, constitution than that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that 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 is disturbing. Uh, that that someone who's who's going to heading for a lifetime appointment on our highest court uh, would write that document. Yeah, and uh, so. What what is your sense here, Roger? Um, will the Eleventh Circuit uh, do this in, a, in an expedited manner? Because they were ordered uh, by the Supreme Court to specifically review the the convictions of Siegelman and Scrushy. Right. The uh, the, the as I understand it, uh, Peter, the the key issue. It's ironic because the the Eleventh Circuit did overturn Siegelman's convictions on honest services fraud. It left in place the con- those honest services convictions on Scrushy. Uh So there's kind of a, a mm. mix and match. Uh, with Siegelman, the main issue that's left is, is one relatively small charge of obstruction of justice, and the main thing is bribery. Uh, and, and is the obstruction of justice on the motorcycle deal? Right. That, yeah. that kind of funky motorcycle deal that I don't know that anybody understands how that well, ever became... And I, I did ask the governor about it, and he, he had an explanation, and I have to say it 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 seemed convenient. <laughs> uh, so I, I, you know, while I, I support his desire to clear his name, the, the, the motorcycle transaction we're referring to, uh, it appears, at least from the record, uh, as presented to the appeals court, that's where I read it, Roger, that uh, somebody gave him a motorcycle, and then he decided that didn't look good, so he kind of arranged to pay for it. Is, right. Is, is right. That... Yeah, I remember you. You were. You were. He'd been alarmed about that issue for a while, and I, and it does. You know, it does smell a little funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that was not anywhere near the the main part of the case, but uh, but it is it is one of the ones still out there. That that and the bribery and. Uh, as I understand it, one of the there, there's a, a concept in the law and case law that says when uh, there there are multiple charges and, and a jury returns a general verdict, and an appellate court later finds that one of those charges was invalid, which in this case would be the honest services mail fraud instruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they've now determined that 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 was not correct. That it, in a sense, sort of poisons the well on everything, and and I'm guessing that that will be the argument that the Siegelman uh, team will make mm-hmm. that that we were, uh, uh, even though our honest services uh, conviction has already been overturned, that the jury was essentially poisoned against us uh, and, and convicted him on bribery and obstruction. Uh, that, that gets a little convoluted, but I, I think that's going to be their their legal approach and where the uh, 
they're, I think they're going to come about it in a somewhat indirect way uh, because uh, his his uh, case was, you know, part of it was overturned and part of it was not. Mm-hmm. And here, there's a different use of the term impeachment, but uh, in legal terms, you impeach a witness or you impeach the credibility uh, of an officer of the court. And it seems to me that the one of the strongest routes for Siegelman would be to, quote-unquote, impeach uh, the integrity of the presiding judge, Mark Fuller. Right, and, and they have filed a, uh, a, a fairly recent uh, new motion to, to recuse. There have been several recusal motions. Uh, the, the, the grounds are so strong uh, that both the Scrushy and Siegelman teams uh, have... Uh, of course, he's, he's essentially a good judge. judge is a government contractor, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, how he's both a judge... And a government contractor who gets contracts to the U.S. Air Force, it, it blows your mind. And yeah, it sure does. That, how can that be? And, and yet he is, and, and he has any number of other conflicts, too. But mm-hmm. uh, Well, and I think that the, and, and this is speculative on my part, but um, my guess is that since the 11th Circuit invalidated the honest services conviction of Governor Siegelman, and then ordered the lower court to resentence him. That they're moving to recuse uh, Fuller from the sentencing process, and now we have this new wrinkle of the Supreme Court ordering further review at the Eleventh Circuit uh, for both Siegelman and Scrushy. And so it's it's uh, unclear to me uh, exactly which path uh, will be taken. Well, it is, and, and you raised the, the question, too, Peter, how long it will take, and that's also unclear. Uh, and goodness knows these things can take a long time. Uh, in Scrucci's case, he's still sitting in a, in a prison cell, uh, and uh, you know, these are, are people who, uh, who very clearly did not commit a crime. Uh, you know, there, there's certainly, you know, we can all question you know things politicians do, but but as far as as truly criminal behavior, this just did not rise to that level, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a shame that that so much of you know these are human beings losing major chunks of their lives uh, while while courts uh, you know swap paper back and forth. Yeah, and so there, there's really a a human element here that it's hard for any of us to be in, in their shoes. Uh, but it, it, it's certainly disturbing that that this has happened, and it's even more disturbing that it seems to take so long that, like you say, it's hard to get anything expedited. Um, also, I, I just want to mention for my listeners' benefit that I have been watching carefully every day in the Wall Street Journal to see if a correction will appear. I mentioned in my conversation with Governor Siegelman a, a week or ten days ago that the uh, Wall Street Journal had erroneously reported that he has been free since trial and that Mr. Scrushy has been serving uh, almost half of uh, his sentence uh, to date. And uh, Siegelman served nine months, including some time in solitary confinement. And the the journal did not uh, find that in their records. I called the 800 number uh, to leave a message at the corrections desk and uh, was very specific about that, but to date, uh, I haven't seen uh, any correction to that story in the journal. Wow, that's quite a mistake when you think of you know the the sixty minutes piece that that showed video of him <laughs> inside the prison uh, in 
inside the prison fence there. I think he was putting out a mop bucket or something. Right, I remember that. And, there, uh, there's a lot that they left out. Uh, the, <laughs> the Carl Rove angle, the Lurie Canary, Lurie Canary angle, the Mark Fuller angle, the uh, Pryor angle. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was heavily sanitized, but I thought on that narrow issue, I, I had them with a, an, an inaccuracy, and uh, so far they, they haven't corrected it. Roger, one of the issues in the Siegelman case was the abuse of a whistleblower, uh, Tamara Grimes, who had worked in the Justice Department and who blew the whistle on misconduct there in the Siegelman prosecution. And I want to direct people to your blog because you have written a powerful piece uh, about whistleblowers and the most recent case of a private uh, in the Army, Bradley Manning, who was accused of leaking the video to WikiLeaks that uh, gained a lot of prominence a couple of months ago. And uh, I saw it. We talked about it on the podcast, and I hope many of my listeners uh, have found the time to take a look at that video. But it's a, a stunning and grisly scene in a, a certain area of, uh, of uh, Baghdad where uh, helicopter gunships are hovering over a public square area, and you see people uh, coming through the the picture, the camera uh, uh, visual area, and uh, they are shot and killed by these helicopter gunships, uh, remotely controlled and uh, commanded. And the banter uh, back and forth over the radio uh, among the various people involved in this uh, turkey shoot is the best way I can describe it. Um, is is very chilling and embarrassing to the military. But this is an event like the Blackwater shootout at Nisour Square or many other incidents where innocent civilians have been killed that begs for an investigation. And instead of an investigation, we're getting a crackdown on the whistleblower who has been threatened with a very serious prosecution that can land him behind bars for pretty much the rest of his life. So uh, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about your reflections on the WikiLeaks case in particular and the Obama administration's treatment of whistleblowers. Well, I, I, I tied that case, which, of course, is, is, uh, has been in the news very recently, back to uh, what happened with Tamara Grimes, uh, the, the woman uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, who a little over a year ago, in June of 2009, uh, wrote a letter to Attorney General Eric Holder outlining misconduct in the Siegelman case, which we just talked about. And eight days later, she was terminated from her position and is still without employment uh, and is kind of hanging in that uh, that federal system where you, you know, you make, it's kind of like the EEOC, and it, they have a, it's kind of a separate system, I think, for federal employees. But she's under tremendous economic distress, and Laura Canary, as you mentioned, Peter, the, the woman responsible, is still a Bush appointee, is still the U.S. attorney. And I just tied those two together as a... Uh, I guess it's sort of along the lines of what you mentioned earlier of, of a pattern of this administration um, kind of shooting the messenger uh, as, as opposed to, uh, to to looking at, at what was, uh, you know, at, at misconduct that, that was revealed by the whistleblowers. And uh, being a whistleblower, uh, from my uh, research on it, is, is a tough thing to do in our society at any time, but, but it certainly has 
has become uh, even more difficult, seemingly, during the Bush era. And, and then that's one of the disappointing things, is that the, the Obama uh, administration doesn't, it seems to be every bit uh, uh, as unfriendly to whistleblowers. And, and in, in the WikiLeaks case, as, as you mentioned, I mean, I mean people's, innocent people died. And uh, uh, so it, it's very disturbing. And, and the young, I think Bradley Manning is only, uh, Peter, what is he, 22 years old? I, I think, think that's right. Uh huh. And so a very young individual. And uh, and it's just, it's just alarming for, for uh, uh, many people who voted for the president, uh, you know, believing strongly in civil liberties and, uh, and transparency, which is a word we hear a lot of. And, um, and, and you wonder if they're serious, if the administration is serious about that word. And, Roger, I think you were looking for the obscure federal panel called the Merit Service Protection Board. And that is where whistleblowers are referred when they make a claim against the government for an improper termination uh, because they reported uh, what they believe to be illegal or unethical uh, improper activities. And I learned about this through uh, 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 Sibel Edmonds and her attorney, uh, Stephen Cohn. Cohn runs the National Whistleblowers Center, and their website is whistleblowers, with an S, whistleblowers.org. And you can get more information about the work that they do. But in my conversations with uh, Mr. Cohn, two things surfaced. One is that there is legislation currently working its way through the Senate. It originated in the Lieberman Homeland Security Committee that is nominally about tightening protections for whistleblowers. But in fact, it makes things worse. And in a podcast with Cohn, it was probably four or five months ago, people can find it in the podcast archives at peterbcollins.com, he outlined his problems with the legislation. And in particular... Um, it weakens existing uh, processes for people in the Justice Department and the FBI and virtually strips whistleblower protection from those in the national security arena. And that would uh, likely impact uh, this Bradley Manning, um, although the legislation hasn't been passed yet and probably would not be retroactive, but it would apply in a similar case like that in the future. And so while, and and that's why I opened up the segment with the Neil Young song and this aspiration about a leader, because we thought that Barack Obama, the former constitutional law professor, really would try to return us to the confines of constitutional rule and to roll back the uh, assertions of executive power and the kind of unbridled authority that we saw uh, grabbed by the Bush-Cheney team. And instead, we've seen that those excesses have become the norm. And in fact, on many fronts, the Obama administration is out there extending the bad legal precedents that were established under Bush. Right. And, uh, and it, uh, you know, just as uh, to, to where this kind of comes home here in Alabama, the, the Tamara Grimes case as an example of the the kind of behavior that they seem to almost be excusing, what she brought to light was a number of things, but one of the big ones was witness coaching uh, in the Siegelman case, where Nick Bailey, the primary prosecution witness, was, uh, and, and Tamara goes into great detail about this, was coached 
on how to make give his testimony in a way that would constitute a crime, a bribe, as opposed to just a standard, uh, you know, political campaign contribution, uh, and uh, and that there were also just essentially facts that were made up. In fact, she calls them uh, the. Uh, you probably remember the prosecutor's name. I think we've discussed how to pronounce it. Steve Fiega or Faga. Faga, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, she she said there were there were facts and then Faga facts mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, and those are just two examples of witness coaching and fudging of facts uh, that are just absolutely frightening when, when people's freedom is at risk. And, uh, and, and like you say, you wonder, how does someone with a background in constitutional law, uh, well, we know Barack Obama is extremely smart, and we know he understands it, but why he doesn't act on it, right. or his administration doesn't act on it, I think is, is what's baffles so many of us and and in some ways i can uh i don't know exactly how to say this because i don't want to excuse any unconstitutional behavior but i can see rationalizations more appropriate in the national security arena because i do accept that there are things they know that i don't know however on the domestic front it's inexcusable to permit tainted prosecutions to stand to have the solicitor general argue in favor of leaving a bad conviction in place, uh, particularly when it affects a Democrat and when the charges of political prosecution or persecution were so prominent. And so you, you really have to wonder, why are they protecting Karl Rove? Why are they protecting bad Republicans? Why do they leave tainted U.S. attorneys in their positions when they should have at least fired them on day one and put an interim person in there, even if the Senate is slow in, in confirming replacements. And, and so the list of questions, uh, again, pertaining exclusively in, in, in this conversation to domestic uh, issues, is, is very hard to explain or rationalize. Well, it is, Peter, and we're getting far enough into the administration that now that, uh, you know, for I think we all understand that uh, that the president inherited a, a mess on, on many fronts. Uh, but, uh, but but these are such fundamental matters, as, as you say, of constitutional law, right and wrong, rule of law. And, uh, and I, I run a video of Anthony Romero from the ACLU in my blog post where he, where he just very succinctly said you know, that he can be patient, but, but he said we just can't move forward without uh, the rule of law being uh, enforced. And uh, and he uh, that's kind of one of the things I, I really prompted me to write this, was he, he had been quoted a, a few weeks ago saying that he was dis- disgusted, was the term that he used, with the administration on, on general civil liberties fronts and, and, and dealing with a lot of the issues that that, that you mentioned earlier, Peter. And, and, and Roger, let me lift the quote that you published in your blog from Anthony Romero, and, and I have deep respect for him and many of the others who work so hard at the American Civil Liberties Union, and in particular in the darkest years of the Bush administration, they and the Center for Constitutional Rights were the primary drivers of the efforts to preserve uh, our constitutional rights by fighting for the rights of those at Guantanamo and elsewhere. 
So Romero, uh, in an interview with Politico, you quote him here, I'm not disgusted at President Obama personally. It's President Obama's policies on civil liberties and national security issues I'm disgusted by. It's not a personal attack. And he goes on, it's 18 months, and if not now, when? Guantanamo is still not closed. Military commissions are still a mess. The administration still uses state secrets to shield themselves from litigation. There's no prosecution for criminal acts of the Bush administration. Surveillance powers put in place under the Patriot Act have been renewed. If there has been change in the civil liberties context, I frankly don't see it. And I think that's an excellent summary of the problems we have, and disgusted is an appropriate term. It, it really is. I mean, he's obviously a, a smart guy, and that's very well well put uh, by Mr. Romero. And, um, and it, it, it's eminently reasonable. Uh, I, I don't think those are anything in there that, that matters of left or right. Uh, he's just talking about matters of law. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I think, uh, you know, I, I appreciate his willingness to, to step out and, on, and, and speak in, in that way. Well, and where are those who are so vocal... Democratic senators and members of Congress who challenged Bush and Cheney publicly criticized them over the very issues that we're talking about today. And now they're silent. We have a Democratic president, and so they are loath to challenge the president of their own party. And they're swallowing words that I'm sure they'd love to speak loud and clear about surveillance, about Guantanamo, about the war in Afghanistan, and so many related issues. And, Roger, I I don't know if I've laid this on you before, but I have this concept about left-lon, and Reagan was the Teflon president to uh, nothing stuck to, and Obama has a new and improved version from DuPont called (laughs) left-lon. And anything that's thrown at him from the left just doesn't stick, because he's busy kissing up to the right (laughs) and and dealing with all these uh, allegedly Democratic uh, conservatives. Uh, who, particularly in the United States Senate, uh, who block his more liberal, and I have to put that in air quotes, um, in, uh, inclinations or tendencies. Right. Well, that, one of the, uh, the interesting things I experienced in writing this particular post uh, that, that we're discussing, Peter, is I, in addition to writing it at my own blog, I, I cross-posted it at a number of uh, national sites like Daily Coes and uh, Fire Dog Lake and uh, and op-ed news, and it, it got a lot—not not huge volume of comments, but but some very—you really sense some serious disgust uh, with with the president on this issue. You, uh, it, I hate to say it, but actually reading the comments might be more interesting than the post itself, uh, as far as the national mood. Uh, and I would encourage uh, your listeners if they're interested. Um, uh, not, not, of course, I'd love to have them on, on my blog, but uh, the content uh, is also at, daily, at, at these sites I mentioned. And, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the, the president has a problem, I think. Uh, there, there are people very, very disappointed uh, on, on these kinds of issues. It's not just Peter B. and Roger talking about it. Uh, well, I, I agree, and I think uh, in, a larger, um, in a larger extent that the Democrats have a problem because they've been inconsistent. And we covered last week the way just before the July 4th holiday recess, they jammed through additional funding for the war in Afghanistan 
by using a series of uh, parliamentary sleights of hand, saying that, well, nobody actually voted for the bill itself. They voted for a rule, and the rule said that if you voted for the rule and one amendment, that the funding bill was deemed passed. And so people like, uh, well, the progressives who I love and, and revere came away saying, yeah, I voted for the amendment to get our troops out of Afghanistan. Well, fine, but it wasn't going anywhere. What they ended up approving was a rule that was a, a, a veneer, a, a, a cheap little cover for the bill itself, which uh, included some, uh, some good spending to keep teachers on the job in the United States, but it was coupled with another supplemental to fund the escalation in Afghanistan. And so we're seeing the Democrats maneuver in a way that takes their political base for granted. And the more people know about these whistleblower issues, about the reasons that Anthony Romero says he's disgusted, uh, the less they're likely to turn out and support Democrats this November. And so the midterm losses could be bigger than ordinarily occur because so many people's hopes have been dashed uh, after having been raised by Obama himself in 2008. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, you know, November's not that far off anymore. And, uh, and, and it is alarming because there's, it's certainly not like Republicans have come up with any uh, outstanding answers to the various issues that are out there. Uh, and uh, it's almost like uh, uh, the Democrats are shooting themselves uh, in, in the foot. And, uh, and it, and it Harkens back to the, uh, the the quote I'm paraphrasing here that Ralph Nader in 2000 uh, it sort of bothered me at the time when he said you know there's really not that much difference between the two parties and and that that's why he wanted to give a a third option another option and and at the time I'd I'd, I'd wondered what he was talking about but I'm, I'm starting to think I realize now what, what he was talking about and uh, well it, it's a little painful for you to bring that up because I denounced him. Uh, for those remarks in uh, 2004 and in 2008, primarily arguing that the Supreme Court is where we saw a real difference between Democrats and Republicans. Now, I will not ever try to lump uh, Sotomayor or Kagan into the same uh, pigeonhole as Alito or Roberts, but we haven't rebalanced the court. We've you know moved it slightly more to the center, with these two nominations. And that's where I was hoping and really expecting that we would see more than a dime's worth of difference between a Republican and a Democratic president. Mm-hmm. And, well, that's, that's a good point, and that, that is so, those nominations are so important. Um, but on some of these other things you, you mentioned, uh, you know, like Congress sort of just... Not not speaking up on these issues, uh, the Democrats almost you know they do they do make you say, hey maybe Ralph Nader had a point. Yeah, well we're going to leave it there for people to linger on and mull over. Roger Schuler, always great to talk to you. I'll see you on your blog. Okay, Peter, thanks so much for calling. You bet, Roger Schuler in Montgomery, Alabama. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. I'd like to hear your comments. Email Peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then